Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. I get excited when I think of what he's done for me. Years ago, when people would come to church, they would have that kind of excitement. But nowadays, I look all around and I see people going to church every Sunday and leaving the same way they come in. Dead on arrival. (laughs) Never clap their hands. Never pat their feet. Never lift their hands. But can I tell you, they gave me this word to speak on enthusiasm. And I looked it up. And I found the meaning of it in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. And I'm going to give it to you the way I found it. It is a compound word that has been borrowed from the Greek word enthusiasmos. This is what it means, a passion for religious belief, special revelations of the Holy Ghost, religious fanaticism inspiring zeal and fervor. What changed? What changed? That uncontrolled movement of the body. Acts chapter 1. Jesus had risen from the grave. And now he had led the people out to a little town called Bethany. And there, with 130 or 40 people, at least 120, he's standing there giving them direction as he's prepared to leave this planet and go back home. And there in the midst of the people, Jesus stands Forty days after his resurrection, what you laughing at? Pardon? Oh, that paper fell. How's that? Forty days after his resurrection. He's standing there in Bethany. And you know, when you get ready to go away, most parents when you have children, you say, now listen, I want you to take heed to this because this is the last thing I say before I leave. And he told them, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to stay there until you be endured with power 
from on high. And you receive the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Ghost. And when he comes, he's going to bring with him power. Not this little mansy, pansy little thing like that. He's going to give you that exuberant worship, that violent shaking and moving of the body, the speaking of other tongues, her glory. And then 10 days later after he ascended, he went out there to Bethany. That must have been a sight to see. The Bible says that he stepped on a cloud and the cloud received him out of their sight. He didn't take an airplane ride back to heaven. He took a plane air ride. <laughs> Stepped on a cloud and they received him out of his sight. And then people following his command went back to Jerusalem found this place called the upper room. And there they waited. And 10 days later, the Bible says in Acts chapter one, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly, that dunamis power, there came a sound that did not come from London, England, Moscow, Russia, Paris, or New York. There came a sound from heaven like the rushing of a mighty wind. Not some cool breeze that blew through Colchester. <laughs> this was the rushing of a mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That violent moving of the body associated with the speaking of tongues. What happened? In the 17th century, when the English language adopted that word enthusiasm from a compound Greek word, up until the end of the 18th century, almost 200 years, it meant dunamis power. And then we limit it to mean excitement. I'm excited. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You will get excited. And I want you to continue to carry on. I, when I was a little boy, I guess around six, seven years of age, uh, I was going to go some other way until I forgot about share. Now I got to turn around and go this way. I was about six or seven years of age. It was the spring of the year. And I was out in the barnyard and the chickens were being hatched. And without any 
previous knowledge of what I was going to do. I happened around these hens that were laying and some of the eggs were starting to crack open. And as I watched, little chicks were coming out and there was a couple that didn't. They were moving, but they didn't come out. So without any medical training at all, I uh, reached down and picked up them chickens. My wife's telling me to pull my pants down. Is that better? Is it better? Okay. Uh, he said, now see you threw me off, baby. So without any previous medical experience, I picked them chickens up and I took my fingernail not realizing that there was advantage to adversity. And I finished scraping the eggshell off them chickens. And then as proud as a peacock, I went up to the house and I showed my mother with great enthusiasm what her brilliant little boy just did. I wasn't prepared for what she was going to say to me. Now remember, this is my mother, the woman who gave birth to me. Uh, I said, Mama, look what I did. She said, boy, you just killed them chickens. Now, that's my mother. You say that to a six or seven year old, call them a chicken murderer right to their face. I, I didn't know how to accept it. So I went, left the house, went back out to the barnyard. And since I didn't have any medical training, I put them back in intensive care. I, I give them back to their mother. <laughs> Later on that day when I was out there checking on their well-being, and I was making my rounds, <laughs> I just added that in. Them two eggs that I had helped to come into the world were both dead. Not wanting my dad to find out when he came home from work what I did. Because I could hear him now. Boy, what did you do to them? No. So I didn't have a mortician's license either. And I didn't know how to properly dispose of their bodies. So I simply threw them in the ditch. <laughs> Never did find out what happened to them birds. But I bet you that bird, put that up there again. He was glad he wasn't there that day. <laughs> so, somebody told me, it doesn't take all of that. Said Jesus never jumped and shouted like that. Let me give you a little piece of advice. Maybe he didn't, but everybody he touched did. Chapter 3, just one chapter over, after the Holy Ghost had come, the Bible says that Peter and John entered into the temple at the ninth hour, being the hour of prayer. You, you got it up there? Oh, cool. Well, if you're going to put it up there, keep moving. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb, was laid daily at the gate to ask alms of them that entered in. 
And seeing Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked of them an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. He expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have give I unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And listen to what he did. So he leaping up and stood and walked to the temple with them, walking leaping and praising God. That's the kind of power that it had in the early church. Just speaking the word. And they were healed, delivered, and set free. But what happened? By the end of the 18th century, that enthusiasm or that word simply meant excited. And that's what we do now. Come to church, sing maybe three hymns and two hers, and <laughs> figure, figure, that's going to be good enough. That's it. But that's not the way it was intended in the beginning. Adversity comes for you to stretch your wings out and be all that God has called for you to be. Your present location is not your final destiny. I see my mother-in-law, she's back there. She's been ill. She's been sick. And it's been for a month or more. And I'm glad that she decided to come here today while I was preaching because if she doesn't get healed, then there's something wrong with my ministry. <laughs> or her faith. <laughs> Oh, my wife said, that's nothing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That fell out of my mouth, Marshall. That just fell right out of my mouth. <laughs> so, your present location is not your final destiny. Don't get content with where you are. Because God has something better for you. And your situation is going to get better. Too many times we build a house where we should just pitch a tent. Your situation is not ending here. When God looks at you, even though you are empty, keep falling and I'm going to step on you like that bird did that snake. Well, I won't. You want to try it. <laughs> your present location is not your final destination. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you where you are. He sees you where you should be. Yeah. And when he speaks to you, even though you're empty, he'll speak to you as if you're full. 
Because when he sees you, he sees you through the blood. And it is the blood of Jesus that gives you the authority to operate in the anointing. And it is the anointing that does not break, as they say. It is the anointing that destroys the yoke. You surround yourself with people that are not going to exploit your shortcomings, but they're going to work with you through them. Because everybody that comes into your life is not meant to be a permanent fixture. Some of them are like that tent, just temporary. And never try to make a permanent relation out of something that should be temporary. Let God be the one to do it. Saul, the first crown prince of Israel, 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. He disobeyed God, and as a result, he was killed in battle up there on Mount Gilboa, along with his sons, three of them, four, three of them. Anyway, when word got back to town that Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle, the nurse put Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, on the horse to flee. She didn't put a seatbelt on. The boy fell off the horse. They never had seatbelts back then. The boy fell off the horse and became lame in both his legs. His idea of him being king one day was now lost. He knew that from that moment on, he would never be king. And he drifted to a place called Lodabar. And I, let me just tell you what, what it means. Uh, I wrote it down and I don't know where I put it. Where is it? Anyway, what it means is a place of despair and loneliness. A place of no hope down in Machar with Amiel. He's down there now feeling sorry for himself. I'll never get to the palace again. He did not know that the king himself was searching for him. And when he got word from Ziba where he was at, that was Saul's servant, he told him, you go get that boy and you bring him here. And he brought Mephibosheth to him. And when Mephibosheth saw King David, he said, why would you, the king, Look at how he saw himself. Look on such a dead dog as I. He saw himself as a dead dog. That's not how the king saw him. He said, bring him here. He said, let me tell you something, boy. I'm going to restore to you everything that your grandfather saw had. And not only that, Zeba and his 70 sons, they're going to work for you but you don't ever have to want for anything because from now on, you're going to sit at my table as one of the sons. 
He thought he would never get back to the palace. Chicken, chicken, chicken. All right, I'll do it myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> Glory! Lodabar just found a state of despair without hope. But here in Jan 2 Samuel 9, David finds this young man who had been dropped. He saw himself as a dead dog, but he had not been forgotten. And David put him in his rightful place. There are two kinds of uh, arcs in the Bible. I got to hurry along. One the Ark of the Covenant, which represents Christ in us. The other, Noah's Ark, which represents us in Christ. God had this man at 480 years of age build the Ark, 75 feet long, Yeah, no, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. He closed the door, one window at the top. The rain started dropping. All of a sudden, the windows of heaven were open. The gates of the waters were just shoved aside, and it began to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Listen, that's what we hear all the time. But that brother and his family, they spent 170, 370 days in that ark, plus another eight days when the dove to come back. 378 days before they hit dry ground. And when they did, I got to tell you what they did. Chicken! Uh. Happiness is a choice. Sometimes you have to think yourself happy. There's advantages to adversity. Young Joseph the father of one of the patriarchs. Abraham was the father of our faith, who had Isaac, which means laughter, who gave birth to Jacob, the supplanter, but where the transformation took place and where we have his 12 sons, one of which was Joseph. Jacob knew that there was something special about that boy. And Joseph was a dreamer. He dreamed about himself being somebody important as a leader. He even told his parents, you know what, I dream that the sun, moon, and stars are going to bow down and worship me. Ticked his brothers off. They didn't like that one bit. We're going to fix this boy. We get a chance. Even Jacob, who probably had some inside track, said, you mean to tell me that me and your mother and your brother are going to all fall down and worship you? Yeah, I'm just telling you what I dreamed. That's all. Anyway, as time progressed... The boys were out working, and Jacob sent Joseph, second youngest son, to go there to uh, 
uh, where would they find them boys at? I forget now, Dothan. To find word of what's going on. And maybe even take them some food. When they saw that coat of many colors coming up the way, they said, you know what? This is our chance. Let's kill this boy. And let's see what becomes of his dreams then. They got together, decided to kill him, and they put him in a pit. And while in that pit, they spy a band of Ishmaelites, some Midianites on their way to Jerusalem, uh, Egypt, slave traders, if you will. They said, look, why are we going to kill him? We got no, we'll get nothing out of that. Why don't we sell him and at least get a profit off him? And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Because if he's sold as a slave, he's just as good as dead. We, he went, Reuben, who was different than the other brothers, he thought, well, I'll put him here, then I'll come back a little later, get him out of the pit and take him back home to dead. But by the time he got back, he was gone. Taken out of the pit, sold for 20 pieces of silver. Them boys did not sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. They sold themselves for 20 pieces of silver. Because God had already orchestrated the ticket to Egypt. He sold to Potiphar, some wealthy businessman, some philanthropist, some kind of a captain, whatever. He owned a lot of property along the Nile. And he also had a seductive man-eating wife who had the hots for Joseph. This strapping young man, when he pulled that coat off, boy, every time she saw him, whew. So she decided, yeah, you're going to be mine. I know what to do. Can I tell you what she did? Now, I'm going to deviate from the scripture a little bit. This, this, is, this is me describing this, okay? She got one of them sealy, posturepedic mattresses that had a pillow top, pillow top mattress. And she grabbed some of the finest silk sheets from the Orient, put them on that bed, and then got some Oscar Della Rante and sprayed it all over. <laughs> that wasn't it. She was a seductive woman woman. She looked in her closet and got some of her finest negluenges <laughs> that were very revealing. She slipped into that thing and then she got some Dolce Gabbana light blue <laughs> and sprayed it all over herself. Had everybody else put out. <laughs> I want to sing the song again, but I don't know if I should. Do you remember what I sang earlier? I'll sing it then. Lock them doors and turn the lights down low. <laughs> Put some music on that soft and slow. <laughs> Baby, I ain't got no place to go. <laughs> I hope you understand. <clears throat> and then she said, she just kept on talking. 
kept on talking. Then, this is the song he sang to my way. And if you feel like I feel, let's get it on. <laughs> Woo, baby, <laughs> let's get it on. And she tried her best to seduce that boy. But David's love for God was stronger than his lust for a woman. I mean, Joseph was stronger than a lust for a woman, and he escaped. Now she's a scorned woman, and she accuses him of doing what she did to him. Now he's put in prison. Not just prison, he's in deep lock. He's, he's in the dungeon. I don't know how long he was there, but he was 17 when they sold him. He didn't become prime minister until he was 30. So in that 13 years, something took place. He's now there in the prison, but he's still doing what God told him to do in interpreting dreams. The butler and the baker, they're put in prison. And while they're doing time with him, they have a dream. And Joseph interprets that dream. And just as he interpreted the dream, it happened to them the way he said it would. The baker was killed. The butler was restored. He said, look, man, please do me a favor. When you get back, remember me. Get me out of this place. The butler got content being home, and he forgot all about Joseph. Two more years went by, and Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it about some corn and some beef. That word sign goes together, corn, beef. He, 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 he had these guys trying to interpret it, and nobody could. And finally, the butler said, man, I remember when you were angry with me, and you put me in jail, and I, I was doing time with this little Hebrew boy, and he could interpret dreams. And I think if you get him, he'll be able to help you. So they brought David out of the prison, out of the dungeon, cleaned him up, shaved his beard, put on some fresh, clean clothes, and brought him to the king, the Pharaoh. I keep saying that, I mean Joseph. And brought him to Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh saw him, he said, can you do what they say? So I can do that and more, but not me. It's by the spirit of the living God. He tells him the dream. And he's so happy with it. He says, you know what? I'm going to promote you in my kingdom. You will be the prime minister of the land. And the only person that's going to be bigger than you in this kingdom is me in the throne. Whatever you say, that's how this nation is going to be ruled. And it was so. And Joseph became the prime minister that day. He woke up in the morning a prisoner, but went to bed that night as prime minister. From the pit to the prison to the palace. God knows where you are. He still has his hand upon you. He hasn't forgot you. He's still working on your behalf. You just have to let him do it. 
1967, my life changed a little bit. I know it's election coming up, and I'm not, this is not, no endorsement for any policy or politics or anything. But they were dedicating a school in Harrow, centennial year. And uh, I'd seen all these cars over at the school and people and everything, so you couldn't get there. There's no sense in trying to drive, so I rode my bicycle. And I got to where you come into the school property, and there in that little teardrop thing there, I seen all these cars and people had a podium up uh, underneath the flagpole and people saying all kinds of speeches and stuff. So I just leaned on my bicycle and just kind of watched. And then I saw three big Chrysler Imperial limousine type cars pull off around the teardrop and they came out and they stopped right there where I was leaning on the pole. In the middle car, the man in the back seat of the middle car opened the door, got out, and walked over to me, put his hand out and said, oh, I'm the Prime Minister of Canada, and I want to say to you, thank you for being here. I almost peed my pants. I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, he is the Prime Minister of Canada. When I shook his hand, it felt like I was squeezing mush. His hand was so soft. <laughs> and then he turned around, got back in the car, waved, and left. No security got out. None of his detail got out. Nobody else but him. And he walked over to me, a little hayseed from Hicksville, and said, thanks for coming. That changed my perspective on my life from then on. You couldn't hit me in the butt with a red apple after that because I had it in with the prime minister. <laughs> now let me tell you something else. Something that is a whole lot more important than that. There's a man by the name of Jesus who is the king of kings the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself, the creator of the universe, the giver of life. He stepped through the universe in the form of a spirit, wrapped himself up in flesh, and took his place in Mary's womb through 42 generations to be the savior of the world. And then gave me the right to be called one of his sons, living! He loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. But rising, he justified me. Freed me forever. And now Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are now seated in heavenly places in 
Christ Jesus, far above all principalities and powers. And the devil is now there on their feet. Yeah, can I get him up to do that? Come on, get on your feet. Let me see you. That's right. That's right. No, no, play it again. Play it again. Yeah. <laughs>